Take your Bibles now and open them up to Luke chapter 23, verse 26. How many guys are on a car finder right now trying to buy a bus? You know what I'm saying? Let's get this going again. <laughs> you know, it might happen. It might happen. I believe, I believe it will one day. I'm going to say a prayer uh, for our time in God's word and ask the Lord to minister to us. Uh, today we're going to cover 30 verses. Okay, 30 verses. I'm not sure if you brought a helmet. The ushers have them. They can pass them out now and put your safety belt on. We're going we're gonna to get after it. I remember one time I was kneeboarding. You ever gone kneeboarding before? And I lived in Minnesota for a season, and my cousins had a boat on Prior Lake. And, and when you're kneeboarding, they told me kind of the hand signals. But one of the hand signals they failed to really articulate and clarify was the thumbs-up hand signal. You guys know what thumbs-up means, right? Faster. I thought it meant A-OK. And I remember one time I was like, all right, that's good right there, you know. And he yells to his dad, go faster. We start going faster. Like, no, no, I'm good right there, you know. And I kept, kept giving him the thumbs up, you know. And man, we were flying. I was like, what is wrong with these people, you know. Slow down. And, and we're going to go fast today. It's going to be fun. It's going to be like water skiing. Lord, we love you so much, and we do. In Jesus' name now, uh, we surrender ourselves to your word and, and to the teaching thereof. And, and we pray a blessing, Lord, on this time. Lord, what a fun deal that we get to be alive. And this is Palm Sunday. And now, Jesus, just coincidentally and amazingly, we're studying the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll be in Luke 24 and study his resurrection, the power over grave and sin. And so, Jesus, we pray that today we'd be encouraged and we'd be edified and we'd be strengthened. I also pray we'd be convicted or that we'd examine our own hearts. Last week, the message was, who is Jesus Christ? And I really don't think the message varies too far every day in our own lives from that same question. When, when we're struggling, the question comes up, well, who's Jesus Christ? When our marriages are battered, the question comes up, well, who's Jesus Christ? When we've fallen to the side of the path, the question comes up, well, who, who is Jesus Christ? When the attack comes, we shield ourselves with that same question and answer, who is Jesus Christ? And so today as we study your undying love for us, Lord, your great sacrifice, may our hearts be softened. I pray for my friends here, my brothers and my sisters, Lord, that they would right now just take their guards off, open up their hearts, and let your word have its way, Lord. These next 30 verses, may they be anointed, and may we be uh, touched in Jesus' name. We say all these prayers, Lord, in your name. And everybody said? Amen. 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 Let me read to you, beginning in verse 25. It says, And he, that is Pontius, released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus, and a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. Stop right there, eyes up here again. Today is Palm Sunday. We studied through Palm Sunday. It's in Luke chapter 19. We're in Luke 23. Luke chapter 19, we began November 25th. Remember that? Back in last year, you guys all had normal colored hair. Now your hair's all gray. And it was like, you know, six months ago. That was a long time ago, November 24th. We started the Passion Week of Jesus, Palm Sunday. Now it's April 14th. 
And it's taken us that long to get to where we're at here. And you guys who don't know what Palm Sunday was, it was the beginning of the Passover celebration. The Passover celebration had been happening for 1,500 years where the Jews would gather and celebrate and commemorate where they had been passed over by the death angel and delivered out of Egypt. Anytime the Bible speaks of Egypt, it's a picture, a type of sin and bondage. And they'd been delivered from Egypt through the lamb slain, the angel passing over them. And so they celebrate every single year. And on this Palm Sunday, riding in on a donkey, comes not just a man, but the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And you guys know that on that Palm Sunday, all of the lambs would be brought in, 250,000 lambs slain during this particular festival. And each one of those lambs would have to be examined. Because one of the temptations would be to bring the priest your bum lamb. You know what I'm saying? Get that lamb with the broken leg. You know, bring that lamb that's got lice. You know, let's bring him in there. And they wouldn't take any bum lambs. It had to be a perfect spotless lamb. No blemish, no wrinkle, no break. And they would examine these lambs. And once the priest said, perfect, this one will count. Jesus, too, the Lamb of God, was examined on day one, Sunday, and also on day two, Monday, and then again Tuesday, and then Wednesday, and on Thursday, he was finally arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would undergo six separate trials, where they would examine him and turn him over. What fault do you find in this man? Jesus Christ, that's the question. Who is he? And under trial of law, Pontius Pilate says, he's perfect. He's done nothing. And he actually labored. Luke doesn't give us the exact story, not in detail. John goes into great detail of how Pontius Pilate kind of spazzed out and wanted Jesus to go free. Man, we've got to get this guy free. We've got to get this guy free. And the crowd and him were at odds, and it was going nuts. He saw no fault in this man. And Herod, Antipas, also saw no fault in this man. Jesus is the perfect lamb that was slain. And so what we see next then is as he passed inspection... He's then delivered, switched, if you would, from Barabbas. Barabbas was sentenced to death as well. Barabbas is the same as you and I, a murderer, a rebel, one who's been sentenced to death. And the switcheroo happens in verse 25. It says, and he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And we saw that great exchange, the sinner for the Savior. Jesus taking his place. Jesus looking to the Father. Release Barabbas. Release Barabbas. Treat Barabbas like you would treat me. Free. And treat me like you would treat Barabbas. A chastised sinner. Now in the other gospel accounts, Luke goes right to the Via Della Rosa. That is the road to the cross. He doesn't tell us what happens next. Look at verse 26. It says, now as they led him away. Stop right there, eyes up here. You need to insert right before that what happened after Barabbas was released. See, after that, Jesus was led down the praetorium steps to the whipping post. As Barabbas went free, Jesus took his place and he was scourged. Now, the intention was twofold. Number one is to show all those uh, wrongdoers what Rome would do to you if you broke their Roman rules. Let's scourge this guy. It's a brutal process. 39 lashings where the leather straps would go upon the back of the victim, tenderizing the skin. 
With on those leather straps would be sheep bones and pieces of metal and shards of glass that would then latch into that flesh that had been softened through the whipping and pull that flesh off of the victim's back, exposing the muscles and eventually exposing the bones, ripping down all the way to the organs. It was twofold. Let's make sure nobody messes with Rome. Secondarily, it was in order that when that victim finally made it to the cross, they would die quicker. There would be no fight left in them. Now, we'll talk about this maybe on Friday at the Good Friday service, which is primarily about Jesus on the cross. And that's where our text is today. So on Sunday and Friday, you'll get similar messages. Crucifixion wasn't new in that day, okay? Our day, it's pretty rare. We don't talk about it. We don't understand it. In that day, I believe it was the Battle of Spartacus. And the Battle of Spartacus, on that battle, when it was over, 6,000 men were crucified over a 120-mile period of road. And if you traveled, it'd be like driving from here to Portland, and on that road, there would be 6,000 men crucified. You would walk down. This would be something that was common. As a matter of fact, they had crucifixion posts that were there year-round. When a victim would be crucified, they would get the cross beams upon their back, and that would be what would be attached to the upright beams that were permanent. Outside of Jerusalem, this upright beam most likely had been there since Jesus was a boy. And as he would go in and out of Jerusalem, he maybe saw victims time and time again on that same cross. Maybe he just saw the post without the cross beam knowing, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. We're far in, removed from the process of crucifixion. But in that day, it was brutal and it was common. Yet when Jesus was led from the steps of Pontius Pilate's uh, judgment seat, he was led to the praetorium, and that's where the soldiers mocked Jesus and put a robe around him and beat him with canes, and they took that thorn, that crown of thorns, and pressed it upon his head. Most believe those thorns were taken from an acacia tree, the thorns being anywhere from one to four inches in length, and they pressed it into his skull and said, there, there's your crown as blood dripped down his face and they beat that crown into his forehead and mocked him. Luke doesn't record that part of the story. Coincidentally though, Genesis 3, God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the fruit, D don't obey me, or don't disobey me. D -d I've given you everything. In the day that you disobey, in the day that you are deceived, in the day that you rebel, you shall surely die. And you guys know the story. They were tempted and they failed. And God came to the garden, and he says, all right, here's what's going to happen next. You guys got to get out of the garden, okay? There's consequences. And some of the consequences are this. There's going to be difficulty in raising kids, difficulty in having kids. There's going to be difficulty in marriage. There's going to be difficulty in making a living, difficulty in relationships. It's all going to be hard right now. How many of you can say amen to all that? Dang. And one of the things that God said, he also cursed the serpent, and he cursed the ground. The man got cursed, the woman got cursed, the ground got cursed, and the beast got cursed. That is Satan. But when he cursed the ground, he said, now it's going to be hard to bear fruit. It was fruitful, it was awesome, but now you're going to have to work hard. And there's going to be thorns in the ground. You ever been pricked by a thorn? You're an organ, Blackberry, capital of the world, walking through the woods. Ah, you know. That wasn't how it always was. And it's interesting to me that here Jesus says he's paying for the sins of the world. One of the Specific instances of the curse, thorns. It's pierced into his head as he pays for the sins of the world, as he embraces your mistake, my rebellion, our folly. Jesus has on his mind, near and dear to him, 
all of our offenses in order that he could pay for them in full, in order that he could absorb them. This gives me the ability to go to the jail tomorrow and look at people who've offended both the law unilaterally here and also vertically between God and say, you know what? Jesus paid for that. He absorbed that. It's part of the curse. You blew it. Me too. And Jesus bore the penalty in his brow. Not just the crucifixion, not just the death, but the sufferings. As his skin was shredded off of his back and his legs and his lats and as he was laid open. And it's the cost of sin. Don't, don't, even, don't even think or move when I say this, but how many of you guys minimize your sin when you sin? You know, it's like, that's not that bad. Not that big a deal. And you justify it. and You just kind of walk into it a little bit. And you play with it. And yet you look at Jesus on the cross and he says... Nothing, nothing fun about this. Two things. When you're tempted to do something foolish, remind yourself, this is what forced Jesus onto the cross. And it will help you say no to the flesh. Okay? And second thing I want you to consider, when you have dabbled in the flesh and in sin and you have made mistakes, consider your Savior who paid for your mistakes. He bled for that sin. That sin is forgiven. He's made all things new. Look at verse 26. Luke fast forwards now after he's been led from the whipping post. And as he was walking with the crossbeam across his shoulders to Golgotha, to the place of the skull, Calvary, outside of Jerusalem, a two and a half mile walk from the whipping post. After 12 hours of trials, no sleep, no food, no water, brutal conditions. And the Bible says that Jesus fell down and couldn't carry that crossbeam. The crossbeam would weigh anywhere from 75 to 120 pounds as these criminals would have to parade through Jerusalem. And they would take them the long way from the Praetorium to Golgotha in order that everyone in town would see, hey, don't mess with Rome. And as Jesus was walking, he fell down, couldn't carry the weight anymore. Verse 26, our story begins. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian who was coming from the country, and on him they laid, that, they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Other gospel writers, we only get one verse for uh, Simon here. The other gospel writers tell us what really went down, that as Jesus fell down and couldn't bear it anymore, a Roman soldier saw Simon and walked over to him and with the flat end of the spear put it on his shoulder, which means you've been summoned to the Roman army. Bear this burden. Jesus had taught about this earlier. He said, when you're asked to carry a soldier's burden one mile, carry it two. And the rule was is you had to carry a soldier's burden if they summoned you with the flat end of the spear. And you're like, well, I didn't volunteer for this, but I see your point. <laughs> you know, I think I'll go ahead and do what you want to do. Now, Simon the Cyrenian only gets one verse here, but he goes down in history. You who are Bible students might know some of what I'm about to tell you. See, the Cyrenian, he's from 800 miles away, modern-day Libya. Okay, he was a black man northern Africa, that had heard about Judaism and had followed Judaism and got to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He most likely didn't know who Jesus was. But there on this particular Friday morning, he saw the hustle and the bustle, and he forced his way to the crowd, to the front, to see what's going on to this pathway. How many people have that kind of personality? You just got to see what's going on. Raise your hand. Where's my people at? Okay. We get ourselves in trouble, don't we? Dang. I have been on the news more times than I care to wish to be on the news, you know, and, and it's, it's a gift for some of them. I'm just going to be right there in the right place at the right time. And so Simon presses his way, and he's like, what's going on? And all of a sudden, he sees the tip of a spear on his shoulder. <laughs> You're picking up that cross. 
Let's be honest. This would have been devastating. This would have been unfortunate. He's here on holiday. This isn't what he wants to do. He doesn't want to pick up this man's beam who has blood and sweat and bodily fluids from this victim and other victims. This would have been unfortunate and embarrassing. He had no other choice, though, to pick up this cross and carry it. Luke doesn't tell us what happens to Simon or Simeon, the Cyrene. Here's the cool thing. As he walked with Jesus, we weren't there. We don't know all the details. But he saw Jesus. Who's this guy? I have to carry this cross. What is going on? And the Bible would later on say to you and I, carry your cross, bear your cross daily, walk with Jesus. Simon had no choice. God chose him. And as he bore this cross and finally got to that hill at Golgotha, we don't know how it transpired, but we do know from the rest of the New Testament, Simon the Cyrenian, this man from Libya, this black man from northern Africa, gave his life to Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 15, in detailing the same event, tells us what his boys' names are, Rufus and Alexander. You know why Mark said that? Because everyone knew Rufus and Alexander. Rufus and Alexander to the church were those church boys, people who'd gotten saved through their daddy, people who'd gotten saved through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 16 details these boys as well. Acts chapter 13, the guys that gathered together with Paul and Barnabas, it says that Simon the Cyrenian and Lucius the Cyrenian, two black men from northern Africa, were there praying with Paul and Barnabas, and we know that these men were saved radically when they encountered, listen, this is so important, Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. That when he saw what Jesus did for him, he could do no other but to raise his boys to love Jesus and to serve the early church and to die in process doing so. That was his life and legacy after he'd met Jesus Christ. This is so cool. Because I don't know if you know what's going on here at South Beach Church. We're kind of all about Jesus. Okay? Like just in case you wonder, like, what should we put on the backdrop here? I don't know. Maybe the whole point. You know, like, just in case somebody starts dazing off and forgets what Luke's talking about. Like, I think we learned about Jesus today. And what should we put on our shirts? How about Jesus is real? Like, you know, we don't want anybody to miss it. And I just, I take so much courage from this man because he made a decision. He didn't have the choice at first. He bore the cross unwillingly. This would have been inconvenient. This was not his choice. But after he got near to Jesus, he made a decision. Can, can you, let's just go ahead and read into the lines a little bit. Can you imagine after he dropped that cross beam, he was done. And he sat there and watched Jesus be spiked to that cross beam and then led to the cross and spiked with his feet and slowly die, he and his boys. What, what the heck, who is this guy? I just walked hours with them on the road and now you're killing, I don't get it. People that are weeping, this isn't a common criminal. There's two thieves on his right and left. They look like they deserve to die, but this man's different. And he made a decision about this man. What was it like when he went home with his boys? Hey dad, what are you gonna do now? I'm gonna follow this man. Hey dad, can we go with you? No, you gotta figure out your own path. What? That's not what he said. Boys, this man was different. Not everyone had that same reaction to Jesus Christ. We're going to see in the story. There are believers and unbelievers. That's it. Simon became a believer that day. God included him and then used him. Let me just say something to you. Your decision matters. The question on the table, who is Jesus Christ? Your decision matters not just to you, but to your kids. You guys get this, right? Moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles. It's so imperative. I'm so thankful uh, to have a wife that loves Jesus, that allows me to lead our family, to raise kids, to love Jesus. This is your responsibility, moms and dads, to lead your kids to Jesus, okay? 
They have to make that decision, but it is on you to help them make that decision. It's not just about you. We live in a weird society, don't we? People are letting their kids, you know, make their own decisions. I'm just going to let my kids figure it out. I've talked to people before. I'm not going to put anything on my kids. I'm gonna let, I want them to make their own decision. It's like, false. Because if you let your kids make their own decisions, okay, they'd be eating sugar for every single meal and they'd never go to bed. You'd have a bunch of zombie diabetics in your house, right? <laughs> but instead, you tell your kids what to eat when to go to bed. You just tell them, right? How much more so, not just with things that are temporary, but things that are eternal. Don't be deceived in our world that has gone nuts doesn't believe in absolute truth that's impossible doesn't b believe in a creator over all of the things that exist it is impossible and people have just closed their eyes and plugged their ears la 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 it's all good no bad what there's a battle pray for your kids this morning on facebook i had one of those memories pop up from four years ago, occasion my daughter turns eight next month, and this was four years ago when she was four, and the quote was from her, hey dad, she said, when she was four, when I get to heaven, I'm not gonna go straight to my room, <laughs> but instead I'm gonna go find Jesus and give him a big hug first, and then I'm gonna draw pictures of him, end quote. And I, I thought that's like, that, that's my daughter right there, man. She loves to draw and loves Jesus. And but four years ago, she's like, I'm not going straight to my room. I'm going to find Jesus. I'm going to give him a big hug. And then I'm going to sit down and draw pictures of him. Like, what better thing is there to do in heaven? I showed that to her this morning. She started laughing. My boys were already in, the, in my car when I left this morning at 7.30 or so. And Acacia was sitting on the couch reading. Crystal was still upstairs. And I said, hey, Acacia, I'm going to church right now. Can, can you pray for me? She said, oh, yeah, I will. And I stood there and waited. She goes, oh, 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 right now, right now, okay, yeah. <laughs> and, and so she began to pray this great prayer. Lord, help, help God to not be nervous today and help, you know, help God to, you know, all this stuff and all this, and just the hearts for Jesus, okay? Alexander and Rufus, noted by Paul, raised by Simeon. And, and I could preach a whole sermon on bearing the cross and the inconvenience and the sacrifice. He was, he, he was rendered unclean did you know that for the ceremony he didn't know what was going on everything in his life changed there was sacrifice involved following jesus cost him everything and it's going to cost and maybe has already cost you something too have you lost something for jesus have you lost your comfort have you lost something your freedom have you been identified and labeled differently simon would have been dirty covered in blood and sweat and tears and bodily fluids and and he wouldn't change any of it for anything and I stand as one among you who has been inconvenienced by the cross. I've found myself, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm a, I don't do this anymore. I'm changed. I'm different. I, I, walk a different. I walk a different path now. I've been stained by the blood. I've been saved. And even to this day, I find my flesh being inconvenienced. I still have the flesh in my life. Maybe you do too. And every once in a while, my flesh says, let's go this way. And I say, no. I'm going to bear the cross. I'm going to sacrifice. His whole weekend would have changed. His whole life did change. Look at verse 27. And a great multitude of people followed him, that is Jesus, and women who also mourned and lamented him. Kind of a side note here, verse 27. Did you know that in the scriptures you can't find a place where there are women and Jesus and they're not getting along? Okay, just so you know. Jesus made a bunch of men real mad. All the women everywhere in the gospels loved Jesus and he loved them. Okay? And historically, 
wherever the gospel is preached, okay, in countries, civilizations, wherever Jesus is planted, women's rights are elevated and women are liberated. It's just the way it is. And where Jesus is not preached, where he's not allowed, the gospel does not prevail, women's rights are not visible at all. It's just the way it is. And here the women followed him. They loved Jesus, and Jesus loved them. He cared for them. He showed exemplary efforts to minister to the gals, and it showed as the way they mourned and lamented him. Verse 28, look at Jesus. I don't even know how he said this. I've got three verses of red letters, maybe four. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. And they will begin to say, the mount to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Stop right there, eyes up here. Jesus quotes a few proverbs and tells them what the future is going to look like. And while they're lamenting for him and his status, I don't even know how he talked during this time. He'd been so savagely beaten. And how he was able to then look at, he's, he's dying, he's crying, he's about to be crucified, and he sees some women that are brokenhearted, and you know what he says? Hey, hey, I see ya, I see ya. Thanks for weeping for me. And he's not being insincere, he's receiving their empathy. But with the shepherd's heart, he says, don't cry for me, cry for yourself, cry for your kids. If you read it in the wrong tone, you're going to say, well, Jesus is being a jerk here. He's not. He's actually being so kind. In his suffering, he's like, wait, I'm good. Don't worry about me. I know. Dying. Dying. And yet he warns them and exhorts them, ladies. And he speaks prophecy, near and far. In the, in the near future, there will be those that have no kids Okay? that will be blessed without kids. In that day and in any day, really, without kids, you kind of feel like you should have kids. And he says, no, no, There's gonna be, it's going to be so tough for you in the future. Please consider yourself. Cry for yourself. He loves them so much to say this. This is mind-boggling to me. I don't suffer very well. Anybody in here not suffer very well? You get a headache and you become the biggest jerk in the world. You get a cold and, man, you just, man, I can't do it, you know. Somebody needs empathy, like, I don't have any for you. I am, it's weird, man, I just am such a baby. And here, Jesus, I love you girls. Please listen to me. And let me just say something that I'm just going to touch on and move on because I don't have time. It is important that we cry and weep with those who suffer temporary sufferings and atrocities. Okay, and Jesus was speaking of that, but he was speaking of something that wasn't temporary, something that was eternal. We should all have a humanitarian bone in our body, all of us, okay, especially the church. We should care for those who uh, need help, who are suffering. But we should be able to look beyond the temporal suffering like Jesus was as he bled out and dies. Like, whoa, 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 I'm, I'm fine. Weep for yourselves until you get right with God, until you fix things eternally. That's what you need to be worried about. And if you are offended by temporary suffering in the nations around us, good on you. Do that. But you should be doubly offended by eternal sufferings. Please, okay? In your humanitarianism and in your efforts and in your conversations, be concerned with those who are oppressed, malnourished, defeated. But do not stop there. I had the opportunity to go to Honduras in 2000 and 2001 and in 2002 as well, 
and we, my church sent six teams, and I went on three of those teams. And the first thing we did when we got there is we stretched a two-mile line through the ground from a water source to this village because they didn't have water. They had to walk two miles to do their laundry, gather water, and bring it back. The women did. We said, you guys need water. We're Christians. First thing you need is water, though. And so we spent two whole trips making water. Then we spent the rest of the trips making 14 homes, and we made a school that also worked as a church. And, man, we did stuff. But the whole purpose of our trip was to bring Jesus to them. They needed our help, okay, temporarily. Las Aguitas is the village. You can pray for them. But they needed our help eternally. Jesus, they're, they're weeping for Jesus. They see what he's going through. He's like, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Verse 32. There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. This does a couple things. This fulfills scripture. It says that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Uh, the criminals aren't mentioned by name. We don't know their names. I think one of them uh, might have the first name Luke. And the other one might be your name. Because this is who Jesus died for. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, we're a Calvary Chapel church, by the way. Calvary literally means skull, so you could call us Skull Church if you want. When your mom asks you, where are you going to church at? This place called Skull Church, totally cool. You know, like, <laughs> freak her out a little bit. <laughs> Anyways. Now, the reason it's called Calvary, it, you can go there today. It's, it's crazy. This is the Golgotha Hill. It's the, the place of the hill, the place of the skull. And actually, as you're standing there, you've got the Garden of, uh, not the Garden of Gethsemane, but the tomb, the garden tomb, where Jesus was buried on the left. And then you've got this kind of cliff, which is a skull. It looks like a skull. There's caves and trees. And right there on that, skull, uh, that hill is where he died. And right below it is a transit station, a bus station now, right there outside of Jerusalem. There's horns honking and diesel buses rumbling. It's just totally gross and whack and all this stuff, but there's the, the skull, the, the eyes and the mouth right there where they uh, believe Jesus and many, many, many others were crucified. There, verse 33, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Jesus said seven things on the cross of Calvary. We'll identify those on Friday at our 6 p.m. service in succession. This is the first thing he said. Number one, Luke records three of the seven things that Jesus said from the cross. The first thing, the primary mission, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, the Greek infers that when Jesus said this, it wasn't just a one-time statement. I've often thought it was. Just one time up on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But the Greek infers that as they crucified him, as they went through the process of putting the railroad spikes through his wrists, one of the most sensitive nerve centers on the human body that would cause a spasm within the wrist to force these hook-like features on your wrist and the shooting pain throughout your members. And as they would have to tie down the victims, most of them writhing in pain and shrieking. Jesus, I imagine, wincing for sure. Yet like a sheep before it slaughters, do it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Over and over and over. Can you imagine these guards crucifying him with railroad spikes through his wrists as he prayed for them? Over and over all the while Jesus being impaled and mistreated, he was praying for our sins. By our, his stripes, we are made whole. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. 
It says they divided his garments and cast lots, which also would have been fulfilling of prophecy. Verse 35, and the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with him sneered, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Stop right there, eyes up here. We're going to see a series of people mocking him. The rulers, the religious guys, mocking Jesus. The soldiers, mocking Jesus. One of the thieves, mocking Jesus. We're also going to see one of the thieves giving his life to Jesus. We're going to see one of the soldiers giving his life to Jesus. We're going to see the women and his friends standing by watching Jesus. There are two groups, believers and unbelievers. I find the group that mocks him, though, the soldiers, which will come next, the thief, which we'll see in a minute, and here are these religious people. Okay, Mocking people usually is a, is a defense mechanism, isn't it, when you make fun of somebody else? You're, you're somehow wanting to jockey a position. I'll just make fun of that person. It's the easiest way to promote yourself is to push somebody else down and push yourself up. And so here these religious leaders see Jesus like, hey, you saved some other people. <laughs> Looking around for some validation. <laughs> save yourself. <laughs> Hoping he really wouldn't save himself. Which, by the way, there's some things you could think through. They noted, you saved other people. Save yourself. They saw that he saved other people. They saw that it worked, and yet they still mocked him. And by the way, there are people in our world today that see the benefits, the values, the success of the church and Christianity, what it does for people. Maybe you even have people in your life right now that can see a notable difference. Well, I see it work for you. I'm glad, glad I'm really, just, I'm happy for you, gee, you know. But I don't want any of that Jesus on me, you know. And they mock him. And I believe it's a, a tactic to defend themselves, making fun of people. It's a defense mechanism. Look what happens next. It says in verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew saying, this is the king of the Jews. Now, when the Jews actually saw that inscription that was commanded by Pilate, put this over him. This is what he did wrong. It's the king of the Jews. The, the, the religious guys freaked out in, in John's Gospel. They say, hey, don't, don't say, this is the king of the Jews. Say, uh, uh, he said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. Oh, man. Because you know, they didn't want anybody to get the wrong idea. We just killed the king of the Jews. When in reality, they just killed the king of the Jews. Luke doesn't tell us about the other time he's given wine. Actually, he's given wine at the end. But the wine is mixed with gall. And one time it's put upon a sponge. And let me just say this quickly for your, your learning. When they gave Jesus wine mixed with gall, the intention there was to dull the pain, okay, to kind of take the edge off. And the Bible says in the other gospel writers that when Jesus took that wine from the cross, <laughs> he spit it out, wouldn't take it. I'm not exactly sure why. I believe it's because Jesus wanted the full force of your suffering upon himself. I'm taking it. Weep for you. Weep for yourselves. I got this. This is my mission from the foundation of the world, and I will not deaden the pain. Additionally, he was offered wine with a sponge. He'll say, I thirst at the end of this portion, and he's given wine. They would give sour wine vinegar to a victim in order to, to stimulate them, in order to keep them alive, to give them a little bit longer time suffering. You know what Jesus did when that wine was given to him? He took it. He took it the full measure. The, the Romans were so brutal in their crucifixion that they eventually figured out that if they put a little, little stool on the back of the cross to, to put your, your butt on, that you would actually be able to live longer. 
and you wouldn't die so quick and they could watch you suffer even longer if you were able to, to breathe and stabilize yourself. And so they would kind of prop you up in that way. And Jesus here endured that, taking this wine, saying, I got work to do. I got work to do. Verse 39, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Jesus doesn't answer. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the second thing Jesus said on the cross, there are seven things. The second words out of his mouth were, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Stop right there, eyes up here. Two thieves on the cross. The other gospel writers detail to us that both thieves ridiculed and mocked Jesus on the way to the cross. Both thieves mocked and ridiculed Jesus on the cross, but eventually one of the thieves had his heart changed. Can you imagine suffering with Jesus, hearing him pray for his accusers? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Looking at the crowd of onlookers, brokenhearted moms in the crowd, women weeping, men with their hoods on praying, Dying with this man saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, where's my people at? Nobody's here to weep for my death because I deserve it. I brought this upon myself. Who is this man who dies with such an audience, who dies with such courage, who dies with such love? And one guy missed it. He said, you're so powerful, you're so tough. Save yourself and save me while you're at it, bro. Mocking him. And the other thief then has the perfect sinner's prayer. He rebukes this man says, hey, hey, hey. Don't you even fear God? We deserve this. This man does not deserve. He acknowledges his own sin. We deserve what we're getting here. And you cannot become a Christian until you finally acknowledge your own sin. You've got to go there first. And I'm a sinner. I've not done what I should have done. I have done what I ought not have done. I deserve this punishment. And then you must acknowledge Jesus in his perfection, in his deity. But you, Lord, you, Lord, he says there in verse 40, but the other answer and rebukes it. Do you not even fear God? Verse 41, and indeed justly we receive the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he looked at Jesus and he said, I want to be a part of it. Look at verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He acknowledged his sin. He acknowledged Jesus as the Savior. And then he asked to be saved. Okay, this is the perfect sinner's prayer right here. And I think most of you have done this. Most of you have seen Jesus rightfully. You've weighed the evidence and you've made a conclusion and you've seen your own life and you've looked in the mirror of God's word and you've seen that all have fallen short of the glory of God and there's none righteous, no, not one. And we're all like sheep and we've all gone astray and you've put yourself in that camp. And while there are some of you better than others here in this room, we are not the standard. The standard is the middle man on the cross. And you can either mock him like one, or you can receive him like the other. Verse 43, and Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, I don't know how Jesus even spoke. When you hung on the cross, okay, your wrists were pierced with spikes, and your feet were crossed with one more spike, and you would slump down with locked out elbows. And in order to take a breath, you would have to pull your elbows upwards, and you would slowly asphyxiate. You would slowly 
have your lungs collapse and your heart would fill with water and eventually it would explode. Jesus died of a broken heart, an exploded heart. And yet somehow, in an effort to express his love for those who would receive it, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'm so glad this story's in here. Okay, you know what this identifies for us? Deathbed salvation. It's crazy. I've been with people before they die that have lived rebellious lives, sinful lives. And Jesus' grace is so big, there's not one sin he didn't pay for. There's not one thing that he can't undo. There's not one person he can't accept. If you would say, even on your deathbed, Lord, would you remember me? And he would look to you and say, today you'll be with me. Now let me just say this, by the way. I'm glad this story's here because it shows us deathbed salvation. Did you know this is the only story in the Bible that shows deathbed salvation? Because it's not the preferable way to go. Okay? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Some people are like, I'm just going to wait till the last minute. <laughs> it's like, don't do that. You don't, you don't know when the last minute's going to happen. Don't wait any longer. If you got him next to you right now, if you've got the opportunity, today's the day of salvation. I'm so thankful this guy never had to go to church to get saved. He never had to take communion to get saved. He never had to give money to go saved. He never had to go to Honduras on a mission trip to get saved. He never had to do anything. He never got baptized. Nothing. He didn't do anything to get saved, and that speaks of Jesus. Okay? You know what else bums me out, though? He never got to do any of the other stuff. He never got to live that life. He got robbed. He missed out. Jesus says, I come to give life. Boom! And life abundantly. John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I am here to set you free. Jesus has things for you to do. And I'm so glad this is detailed for us, but it's not the way that you should choose to go, but if it is the situation you or a relative finds themselves in, his grace is enough. Verse 44, now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. That's from nine in the morning when he was crucified till noon. And then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the seventh thing that Jesus said. There are four other things that he said. We'll talk about that on Friday. And when it was all done, Jesus said, after the veil was torn in two and the sky was darkened and the earth quaked, he had finished what he came to do. Father, I commit my spirit into your hands. And he died. And you who know about Jewish religion, there was a veil that separated everybody from the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt. Nobody could go behind that veil besides the high priest once per year. And if he did it wrong, he would die on the spot. It was a big deal. When Jesus died outside of Jerusalem, there inside the temple, this veil was torn in half from top to bottom, and it wasn't just a curtain. Some historians say it was 18 inches thick of fabric woven together, this huge separation between everybody and God. And Jesus cries out, Te Telestai, it is finished. And the veil was torn from top to bottom. Notice it wasn't torn from bottom to top. Okay? That would make sense. God says, no, no. This is top down. My son is making a way for everybody to have access to God 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes through the Father but through me, and he invites all to come through him. All of this happened while Christ hung on the cross, verse 47. And so when the centurion saw what, was, what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. This is a Roman centurion. That means he's in charge of hundreds of people. He's a tough guy. He had seen hundreds of crucifixions. He had seen this happen. And all of a sudden, something different, ground quakes, sky darkened, temple torn, and he sees this guy, and he gives his life to Jesus. This guy was not a mere man. He was a righteous man. He was God. And the centurion gives his life to Jesus, verse 48. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. They all left confused, perplexed, but... All his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. And he had not consented to their decision indeed. And he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of rock where no one had ever lain before. Stop right there, Isaac, there. Joseph of Arimathea, you guys have heard his name before. He only finds himself in the scriptures once, and it's right here, at the death of Jesus Christ. John tells us that he had a friend with him. His name was Nicodemus. Both of these guys were rulers of the law, the Bible says in John's gospel that Joseph of Arimathea was a believer, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And so he came out, business day, oh, we're killing people, all right, I guess I better be there. And he saw Jesus, the one who he secretly loved, die. And he walks up to Pilate, out of the shadows. Can I be in charge of this man's body? Me and my friend Nick here. Are you, you got, just think about it. These are businessmen, rulers, well-to-do guys that nobody knew loved Jesus. They had hidden it well. They had something for Jesus. And then what changed everything was seeing their friend die for them on the cross, hanging there lifeless. And so they risked it all and said, could we, could we take him off the cross? Joseph of Arimathea had a, a tomb for himself. He was a rich man. Isaiah chapter 53 says that he would be laid in a rich man's tomb. Peter didn't have a tomb. John didn't have a tomb. Matthew didn't have a tomb. Andrew didn't have a tomb. Joseph did. And he said, I, it's time to get out there. It's time to do something for Jesus. And he risked it all. Verse 55 and 56, the final verses. I'm going to have Ryan come up and lead us in a song. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after. And they observed the tomb and how the body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. If you're following along in the timeline, this all happened on Friday afternoon. And as they began to pull Jesus' body off the cross, before the sun would set, Sabbath day started on Friday evening. As soon as the sun set, Shabbat, the Sabbath. And they had to hurry to get Jesus buried in the tomb so they could go weep and rest on the Sabbath. On the Saturday, we have no record of what happened in the church. Nobody knows until that next Sunday morning, early in the morning, when the women with their faces swollen with tears showed up to the tomb to finish the job, the job of caring for his body. 
But before we get to Easter Sunday, so moved with love and compassion, so moved with sacrifice, so moved with enduring commitment, these men, these women gave everything they had on that Friday night to make sure that the body was taken care of. Can I just say this? They didn't know that there was a resurrection coming. They just didn't know it. You're here this morning. Did you know you don't really know the future? You don't know what's going to happen in your marriage. You don't know what's going to happen in your, in your battle right now. You don't know what God has for you. Here's what I want you to do, though. I want you to apply the blood to it. I want you to take it to the cross. I want you to take it to Jesus and care for those things gingerly. They wrapped his dead body in burial spices and linens and laid it there on the slab of stone and covered it with the stone and did everything they could. They did whatever they could. Now they need a miracle. Last night I was messaging with a friend and the marriage was over as of last night. And I said, well, let's give, let's give, it, one more, let's give it one more go. Let's give it one more go. And, and, and this person said, well, how do you suggest that we do that? I said, well, it's Sunday night. I can't believe you're texting me. You know. But let's, let's, let's deal with it. Here's how, and here's, here's what I think we should do. And then I went to bed. And while I was laying in bed, I, I prayed for the, the, their spouse. And it wasn't the most powerful prayer in the world. But it was, a, and it was even, Lord, are you really able to break that person's heart? Or do they need their heart broken? Lord, they need to repent. Lord, we need them to get back on the team. Lord, would you do, would you do that? And I, and I went to bed. And this morning, as I woke up this morning, early in the morning, there was a message from the person I was texting. They said, you're never going to believe what happened last night. And they sent me some screenshots of a proactive response from their spouse saying, I have been an idiot. I've been dropping the ball. I've not done my part. I need you to forgive me. I was like, this is, that's, that's not usually how it happens, you know. I've been here before. What's going on in your life? Take your situation. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your own holiness. Maybe you're, maybe you're addicted to pornography. Maybe you're addicted to drugs. Maybe you're addicted to depression or pills. Or maybe you're addicted to something. Maybe you have no peace, no inner peace, full of turmoil. You don't even know what's going on. You don't even want to go any further. You need to trust Jesus today. Jesus, can you redeem this? Can you bring resurrection to this? I need deliverance. And then rest in what he does. Father, in Jesus' name now, as we prepare to take communion at the table, we do so remembering your broken body and your spilled blood for us. Lord, as we read this story, we see there are two camps. There are believers and unbelievers. There are those who saw you and responded wrongly. There are those who saw you and stepped out of the shadows and said, we're all in. This man was a righteous man. And I pray for my friends here. As they come to the table of communion, this is for believers. This is for people who celebrate what Jesus has done for them, who decide to step out and apply the blood to their own hearts, who say, I trust in the Lamb of God. Lord, I pray for them in Jesus' name, that as they come to the table, you would give them resurrection power, Lord, and redeeming in their marriages and in their relationships with their kids, Lord. Soften hearts even today, Jesus. You bled for that. You died for that. You paid for that. It has already been given. And what we do, Lord, is examine ourselves, proclaim your death until you return. And before we do this, if you need the blood of Jesus applied to an area of your life, if you need resurrection power, 
Okay, if you, if you need to trust in him and rest in him, would you right now just raise your hand if that's you? You need something. You got something out of order. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your own battle of holiness. Just raise your hand. Don't be shy. You need Jesus to bring new life to this area. Maybe it's something small. Maybe it's just your devotional life. Maybe you're just a baby. You haven't been seeking the Lord. You just need a spark in your life. Raise up your hand. You just need Jesus to light you up. Lord, my hand is up too. Jesus, would you light us up? Would you do for us what only you can do? We surrender to you. You are a righteous, holy, just, and perfect man. There is none like you. And we do what we do now, celebrating and anticipating new life. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said...